Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Like Kyle Hi said, again. We're going to Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org slash connect. Last week, if you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening. Uh, and we said that, uh, in essence, that our emotions shouldn't be ignored, that they reveal something deeper and they invite us to experience life in deeper ways. Um, and if you missed last week or if you miss any weeks uh, to come this summer as you're in and out, you can always go onto our website, bgcovenant.org slash sermons, uh, and find what you missed there. Uh, so we were exploring our emotions, but where do we go from there? Because surely we're not meant to be paralyzed, stuck in our emotions. Our, our emotions lead us deeper, but we still have life. Life still moves, and so what's our path forward. And so today we're actually going to revisit Psalm 42. We're going to open it right back up. And I think what we'll find is that with the psalmist, we'll actually find a way forward. So we're going to open up Psalm 42 again, and we're going to start in verse number five. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul's downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. From the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep. In the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By the day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer, mortal agony, as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So again, last week we were exploring the emotional part of it. There's some raw emotion there, right? He's getting honest with his feelings and laying all his cards out on the table. But that's not all that he's doing. That's not the only thing that he's doing here. He isn't simply listening to his emotions while he is doing that, but he's actually speaking back to himself, which is super unique. It seems like in Scripture we often see people speaking to one another, maybe a letter written to a specific group of people, people praying to God. But here in the psalm, the psalmist, the writer, is talking to himself. And for a good portion of the psalm, that's who he's talking to, which is super interesting. Why are you downcast? He asks himself. Then he gives himself like a command, like, listen to yourself. You know what? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. And this is all happening, his speech to himself. Now, you may be thinking, Robert, 
surely you're not about to invite us to start talking to yourselves. And I'm with you. I don't really need help looking more like a crazy person. I do a pretty good job of that myself. Like, have you ever been maybe at a grocery store and talking to yourself and got caught? Maybe this is just me. Because I'll, I'll, I'll find something and I'll go, oh, shoot, I forgot this. And, oh, but, ooh, look at that. That's interesting. Jenny would like, we could have that for dessert. That would be really nice. And I'll be saying these things and I'll, I'll check to my side and somebody will be actively <laughs> avoiding eye contact with me. Again, maybe it's just me. But we actually do talk to ourselves. This is not just reserved for the crazy people. Talking to yourself is actually more common than you might think. The majority of humans have an inner dialogue, or maybe more appropriately, an inner monologue, um, because you're not always talking back and forth to yourself. Sometimes you just make statements like, I need bread. End of conversation. You get bread. That's a monologue. I've made a statement. A dialogue would then be if you're responding to yourself. <laughs> this is where crazy people sound like they're crazy. I need bread. Oh, but we are going on vacation next week, and uh, maybe we can make those two slices of bread. Maybe I'm the only one that'll eat a sandwich. But it's only a two bucks of a loaf of bread. That should be fine. And now that you're entertaining multiple viewpoints and having a conversation with yourself. Monologue, dialogue. Some people, according to studies, have more words that they use. They speak more to themselves than others. Um, so there's a varying amount of verbiage that you might use. And some people engage in this inner conversation on purpose, and some people don't really know that they're doing it. Um, and some, for some people, this is actually really interesting, you don't even use words. So you're talking to yourself, but you don't use words. It's more like sensations, um, or like a craving where maybe you're smelling freshly baked bread, or you're craving it, you, you can taste it, even though you're not really smelling it or tasting it, you go, ooh, that sensation leads you to the bread section to grab some bread. Or maybe you picture, like, a loaf of bread. But it's still kind of this inner conversation that you're having with yourself. And that's all harmless enough. Thinking about your groceries to yourself, that's helpful. But we also have thoughts about ourselves, about our person, about our identity, about other people, their person, their identity, we have these other thoughts. And they can be helpful thoughts, and they can also be hurtful thoughts. They can be truthful, or they can be lies. And we believe those lies. And what we think about ourselves, what we think about others, what we think about God, isn't just a neutral happenstance. It's actually pretty important because it actually shapes our lives. It shapes how we move through our life. Craig Rochelle, uh, Pastor Craig Rochelle, author in one of his latest books, Winning the War in Your Mind, says this, our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. Our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. What we think shapes who we are. So the way that we talk to ourselves, that inner dialogue, is actually a pretty big deal. And it can even be a matter of life and death. That sounds dramatic, but go with me. Jim Collins, a leadership guru and author, uh, famous for his book, Good to Great, 
uh, talks about this concept called the Stockdale Paradox. The Stockdale Paradox. And the name refers to an admiral, Jim Stockdale. Uh, he was the, Jim Stockdale was the highest ranking United States military officer in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp during the height of the Vietnam War. He was tortured over 20 times during his eight-year imprisonment from 1965 all the way through 1973. Eight years he was a POW. Stockdale lived out this time without any prisoner rights, no set release date, and no certainty as to whether he was going to get out at all. He did get out. And if that situation seems hopeless to you, imagine how he must have felt throughout that time, the eight years. I just, I can't even imagine it. But when asked about it, when he recounts his experience and how he dealt with that experience, here's how he talks about it. He says, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted that not only would I get out, but that I would prevail and in the end turn this experience into the defining event of my life. Yet there were others in the same situation. He wasn't the only one in his camp. There were others, and they didn't all make it out. And this part's fascinating. Stockdale says it's actually easy to identify who it was that was able to make it out, who, it, who didn't make it out, and why. It was easy, he says. It was the optimists, he says. Oh, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. And they'd say, well, we'll be out by Easter. And then Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then Christmas again. And he says, they died of a broken heart. He says, you must never confuse unwavering faith that you will prevail in the end with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever that might be. We can't confuse unwavering faith with the discipline to confront the brutal facts of your current reality, whatever it might be. He says, you must confront the brutal facts. In other words, you have to be honest with yourself, which is something we explored last week, that pretending everything is fine is just a lie if everything's not fine, if you're unwilling to confront the brutal facts of your reality. But then there's this other bit. He says unwavering faith. He calls it unwavering faith, which is different than optimism, he says. Because optimism is unanchored hope. It's detached from reality. Just because you say a thing doesn't mean that that thing is true. It's just a form, another form of avoidance of the, my current reality. I'm avoiding my current reality because I've made up something that'll make me feel better. And then that thing comes back around 
and slaps you in the face. All you've done is defer that pain to later because it's not true. You've just made something up. That's optimism. And this is sort of what people mean when they talk about a house of cards. It has other um, ideas as well, but it's sort of a house of cards. You build this nice, pretty thing, but it doesn't hold up. Any little breathe or sneeze, just it's gone because it's not real. It's not solid. And your non-Christian coworker or neighbor or family member, or maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking this yourself, I don't see the difference between optimism. Isn't that what faith is? The majority of people think that's the same thing, that that's what faith is. It's just optimism. It's, an, it's a good outlook on life, right? It's a house of cards. Your life looks well put together, but we really know that when things get hard, it's not real. And can I just say that's not what faith is? That's not what faith is. Faith is anchored. It is rooted in reality. It's not blind hope. It's not like a trust fall with a stranger. Well, I hope that they'll catch me because at least the hope is a better feeling than the dread of falling. That's not faith. Faith is a strong confidence because it is based in what we know and have experienced in the past. It's not made up future. It's based in reality of things we know and have experienced to be true from the past. Psalm 42.6. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you. The psalmist is looking back. He's remembering things that have actually happened. And what's he remembering? From the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. So when we talk about unwavering faith, what does unwavering faith sound like in your thoughts? What does that sound like internally? Well, what's the psalmist doing here? Is he finding strength within himself? <sighs> Suck it up. No. Is he imagining a fictitious future that will destroy him later if it doesn't come? Well, he is imagining the future, but that's not where he starts. It says, therefore, I will remember. Faith-filled self-talk, the way that unwavering faith sounds like in your inner dialogue is remembering what is true and allowing that to inform your future. He's remembering, it says, the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, Mount Mazar. These are specific places. You might recognize the, the Jordan River part. They're all places around Jerusalem. It's like, this is like the hub of where God's presence is. And what's important here is not specifically the places for us. For him, these are places that he's remembering he's had encounters with God. He's had experience meeting God. These, not just specific instances of meeting God, but seasons and rhythms of his life of encountering God in prayer and his presence in these places. 
He's remembering what has been true. And those things that have been true, he's stored up for a season when he doesn't feel close to God. He feels downcast. And he's recalling those experiences. He's remembering what has been true. And therefore, he has the confidence to believe it when he says, I will praise him again. He's my Savior and my God. I will experience his nearness again just like I have before, because that's who he is. He's the God who comes near. He comes near to me, and I know that about him, so I can anticipate that in the future. That's unwavering faith. Matthew Henry, in his commentary uh, on this psalm, Psalm 42, says this, The way to silence the voice of our miseries is to remember the God of our mercies. The way to silence the voice of our miseries is to remember the God of our mercies. What's happening in this psalm is more than just go to your happy place, think positive thoughts, or playing a motivational playlist to pump you up. The psalmist is forming and building and strengthening what Stockdale calls an unwavering faith, which is different from optimism because by remembering and then repeating those truths back to himself, that's a strong confidence, not a general blind hope. He's remembering and repeating that truth back to himself. And this is how faith is formed, how it's strengthened, how it's built. Unwavering faith is formed by unwavering repetition. Unwavering faith is formed by unwavering repetition. And there are two sides of the coin here on this that we'll talk about. And the first is repetition of what? Repetition of provision. Repetition of provision. It seems like for the last six months or so, uh, our little boy, our one-year-old Emmett, has been teething. One set of teeth comes in, and then as soon as those are done, another set comes in somewhere else, and it's a painful process. <laughs> uh, I'm not experiencing it currently, uh, but for him, it's painful, which to be fair, there are little bits of bone piercing his fresh little baby gums from the inside out. Ouch! I'm sorry, buddy. And so it's understandable that he would be a little more moody and parenting would become a little more urgent because at any minute he could throw a fit because he's just kind of on the edge. He's already bothered and he's right on the edge. But something interesting for us that we found out, uh, Jenny and I, is that we actually cherish the couple of days when his pain is at its worst, at its peak. And we start to look forward to those days one, it's a marker of, okay, it's not going to get worse than this. But two, when his pain, when Emmett's pain is at its worst, all he wants is to be close. He just wants to be close to mama or dada. He wants to snug. He wants to be in our laps. And we've come to cherish that because we know he's not going to be small forever. And so while he's still just our little guy, we cherish those peak moments of pain because he just wants to be close. 
Emmett just wants to be close. He doesn't try to handle it himself. Come on, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Just suck it up. No. (laughs) He wants to be close. He wants to be close to where he knows he'll ultimately be provided for. And how does he know that he'll be provided for? Why does he think that? Why does he think that being close to mama or dada he'll be provided for? Because when in his life has that ever not been true? Rarely. All one and a half years of it, when he's hungry, he's fed. When he's playful, we're on the floor with him. When he's dirty, we bathe him over and over and over again. Emmett has learned that his world is safe, that with mama and dada around, he is provided for, he's provided for, he's provided for. And so when his little life is tough, that's where he wants to be. Unwavering faith is built on the repetition of provision. And we're a more independent people than ever before in human history. It's why the self-help section of the bookstore is so large. We think we should discover our way out of pain, that we should figure it out ourselves. But our example in the scriptures is more about reliance and remembering the God who is the provider. We need to see ourselves as we truly are, not as independent self-help seekers, but as little one-year-olds who are desperate for the Father's provision. How has God intersected your story? How has he provided for you? He has. We just have to have the eyes to see it. And he's done it over and over and over again. He's never failed us, and he's not going to start anytime soon even when it might feel like he's failing. So why are you downcast, O my soul? Not, come on, soul, figure it out. We're going to be fine. No, remember. Because unwavering faith is built on the unwavering repetition of provision. So that's one side of the coin, provision. The other side of the coin is the repetition of what we're going to say, the song we sing. The repetition of the song that we sing. You say song. Hmm. Well, we've said before that the Psalms are actually songs, S-O-N-G. Yes, I am saying that right. They're lyrics. This, it's poetry, but it's lyrics. And a lot of them are set to specific instruments for a specific group of singers. It's like worship music. And Psalm 42 specifically is an interesting one because... It has a chorus in it. It has a part that repeats. Maybe you've noticed it. Verse 5 and verse 11 are exactly the same. He reads, he writes, he sings, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This is probably the part of the psalm that you remember. If, if you can't remember any bit of the song, you probably remember this part by now, and you're tired of hearing me say it. It's like a chorus. And interesting enough, the very next psalm, Psalm 43, which is sort of like a deleted scene out of Psalm 42, how does it end? 
Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? It's the same thing. It has this chorus, which in Western music, we have lots of. We have lots of choruses in Western music. They're the parts that repeat. They're the parts that you're familiar with, and you might not know the whole song, but when that bit comes along, you're definitely singing it. In modern Western music, the chorus of the song is the part that everyone definitely sings to. Now I'm going to test that theory. We'll see how this goes. Sweet Caroline. Yes, I was so hoping that was going to work, and otherwise it would have been a major fail. How did you know that? How did you know that that came next? Because in that song, that's the chorus. That's the part that repeats. There are other parts of the song, of course, not just that song, but songs in general in our Western music. You have verses with different words, but the same music. There are bridges with different words and different music, which really kind of cause you to lean in. You're like, oh, this is different. And then there's the chorus, the part that repeats. It's the part you sing the most confidently because you know it. And in Psalm 42, the part that repeats is this reminder. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. Why? How can he say that? How is he so confident? What do we know to be true? Who is God? What's he say? He's my Savior and my God. He's my Savior and my God. He's my Savior and my God. He remembers and he repeats it back to himself. So unwavering faith is built on the unwavering repetition of provision, unwavering faith is strengthened. You want to strengthen your faith. Unwavering faith is strengthened by the unwavering repetition of the song we sing. What's the song that you're singing? When a wave of life crashes over you, whether it's something big or a thousand little frustrations that just build up, What's the song that you sing to yourself in those moments? And is it even true? Is it helpful? Oh, I can't believe I did that. I'm a failure. Lie. I'll never be good enough. Lie. Or that person did that to me, and see, so that's why you can't trust people. They're always going to let you. Lie. God doesn't care about me, or he wouldn't let this thing happen to me. Lie. He'll never be able to forgive me for that. Lie. Speak what is true. Remember what you know about God, how you have experienced him, how he speaks about himself in the scriptures. Remember that. And speak that back to yourself. I am loved. He calls me pure, forgiven, free. God is strong. He is good. He's enough. He's here. He's near. I am safe. Unwavering faith is strengthened by the repetition of the song that we sing to ourselves. So this is your simple invitation. 
today. Once you've got the courage to experience and find clarity in the depths of your emotions, why do I feel this way? Your way forward in the midst of whatever your current reality is, is to remember and repeat. And this is actually a form of prayer. Because it's not even necessarily just you talking when you're remembering things that are true about God and repeating them back to yourself. In prayer, you're encountering God. You're not just, it's not a one-way conversation. You're actually encountering God. Because prayer is not just asking for things. It's not a button to be pushed. It's a relationship to be pursued. That's what prayer really is. And so when you remember things that are true and you repeat them back to yourself, the Holy Spirit, God actually comes alongside your thoughts and agrees with you and strengthens the chorus of that song that you're singing. You say, I'm a child of God, and he comes along and says, yes, you are. And that's strengthening. When you hear that from him, when you sense that, that's strengthening. So what do you need? What do you know about God? When have you seen him provide for you in the past? In just a minute, we're going to sing songs. We're going to acknowledge his presence with us here in this place. I'd invite you to use that time to ask God to remind you to help you remember something that's true about him, something you know to be true, some way that you've experienced him, ways that he's encountered you in your life, something that encourages your heart right where you need it. And begin repeating that true thing over and over and over again. And let that truth begin to sink in let that be the song that you sing all week or as long as it takes to sink in. Because when we remember and repeat what's true to ourselves, we're able to silence the panic. We can silence the lies. And we can begin forming an unwavering faith that no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in, we will prevail. Would you let me pray with you? Lord, we adore you. You are a good God. You're present with us. You care for us. You're in control. And Lord, I confess just myself so often I forget that and think that I have to control things, that you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, that it's up to me. And so, Lord, would you remind us all of who you truly are and help us to repeat that back to ourselves. Thank you for being there for us, even when we're not seeking you. And thank you for going ahead of us this week. Help us to remember you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi again. 
Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening.